welcome to the Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part one of 80s movie songs, where Alan and I will be curating side A of a mixtape featuring cinematic music treasures from the golden age of soundtrack singles. And it really was the golden age. Oh, totally. And the 80s, I, you, could, you could make a strong argument for the 90s, perhaps, but the 80s, especially with the invent of MTV, everybody was out for the next big hit. And, you know, movie soundtracks were no exception. So they, 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 they very easily pulled the major recording artists of the day. Everybody wanted to be on the soundtracks. And those soundtracks went platinum. I mean, you're talking several major hits on very nearly every movie soundtrack that came out. It was just, you're right, it was a golden era. Well, it was the cross-promotional aspect of it, which worked in the 80s. I'm not sure why it didn't continue a little bit in the 90s, but like, you know, think about it, right? You had a, an, an artist, maybe an artist trying to, to sell more records, and so it helped the artist to appear on the movie soundtrack, and then it helped promote the movie itself, especially considering the music video in the 1980s. Right. Because now kids are watching their favorite songs and they're watching movie trailers at the same time because most of the videos intercut actual scenes from the movie with the actual artist. Mm -hmm. So MTV was already a, a, a platform for advertisement for music. Now it became a platform of advertisement for movies as well. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, I, I recall watching MTV during that time. And, yeah, I mean, they, they sold several movies to me that I probably otherwise would not have had interest in seeing. Yep. So, yeah, it was just, oh, it was magical. Yeah, yeah, like you say, sometimes five, six, seven. I think Footloose had seven singles off the record. Was six it, of them hit. Was it that many? Um, six hit, seven were, were the total. Yeah, that probably that Beverly Hills Cop right. had quite a few. Yep. Um, you know, there are a few soundtracks oh, that there just... Was, there were so many. Okay, question. Yeah, yeah. What is your favorite... 80s movie soundtrack. Do you well, have gosh, a favorite? I didn't even think about that. My favorite 80s movie. <laughs> Maybe look at my choices to try and figure <laughs> that one out. I mean, I know I, I did have uh, Footloose and I had uh, Beverly Hills Cop or two that I had uh, that I owned the actual, you know, vinyl full sure. soundtrack. I owned Purple Rain. Uh, I might have to say Purple Rain, if not my favorite, it's definitely the, the, the most solid of all of them. Yep. Yeah, that, I, you know, I, I, thought about this coming in today and yeah purple rain gets my vote yeah. just from start to finish it is it is the most complete most solid and you could you could argue you know it's one artist it's his own promotional you know movie material but i it is without question the highlight of prince's musical career and it became a bit of an albatross for him actually because how do you compete right with yeah, purple it was, rain? It was that um, was such a great, um, not only commercial success, but artistic oh, um, absolutely. success. And I, we've said before that you and I are huge horror fans, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, for my money, one of the best horror films of the last 20 years is Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh -huh. hands down. Yeah. So I knew it was going to be a favorite film for all time. The moment I saw Simon Pegg and Nick Frost's characters thumbing through their record collection. Oh, save Purple Rain. <laughs> deciding what vinyl to frisbee at the two zombies in their yard and... Yeah, Peg's character Sean absolutely refuses to chuck Purple Rain. Yeah, you know that yeah. that that sold me on that movie before a lot of the hijinks even 
even began. Well, yeah, using using a movie to promote an artist, you know, to the next step, of course, um, it started, well, I don't know if it started with, but I, the first one I can recall was Hard Day's Night from the Beatles. Yeah. And then you had, of course, other artists, the Monkees tried it. Um, a lot of people tried it successfully in the 80s, maybe, well, not so successfully in the 80s, like Madonna with uh, Who's That Girl and Desperately Seeking Susan. Right. But, uh, but Prince, um, you know, for whatever reason, the, the magic happened, uh, lightning in a bottle. Um, it was a very successful film with lots of singles and really, I mean, Prince obviously had been known before this but uh, really launched him into superstardom it did although one of those tracks on purple rain it became one of the 15 for the parents oh yeah resource center darling nikki which i love i I mean it's just a funky i'm not sure i even understood it (laughs) well no at at that age probably i'm like what's the i don't understand what they're saying (laughs) but um you know it's funny too that you bring up purple rain because our mutual cousin uh, for our listeners, we're not actually related, but we both have a cousin who married the other, and we, uh, their daughter, she she posted not too long ago that she was not a fan of the song. Oh, Rain. I remember that. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and you, I, I, I didn't did comment. I say, I, oh, did I comment? But you did, and I saw it, and you're like, but that's solo. Oh, guitar <laughs> solo. And I just, I just had to chuckle. I thought, no need to add anything. Dave just won the argument. Arguably so. the greatest guitar solo of at least the 1980s oh, and yeah. definitely of the top 10 of, of all of rock history. Oh, yeah. oh, Prince doesn't get enough credit as a guitarist, but uh, we are probably sliding into uh, material. Well, that material that we're going to talk we're about. We're going to so, talk yeah. about. So, yeah. Well, it's, let's go over our criteria before we begin. Absolutely. My criteria, uh, this, by the way, was a very fun list to compile. I think um, last week I said how easy it was, and of course I should never have said that because then I started thinking <laughs> of other songs, and then uh, and then uh, my wife and I were listening to the, the playlist yesterday in the car, and uh, she suggested a few, and so there was a lot of juggling up to the last uh, probably half hour for me until I finally made my final really? choices. Well, this as to morning. what was going to be on the alternates list or what I was going to gotcha. include and so forth. Okay. So, um, but here's my, my, my rules were this. Number one, um, I did not pick more than one song from any movie. Okay. I, I did the same. It, it was one song per film, and that was, that was it. So. And the song had to be written specifically for the movie or had to at least appear first in the film and not on a previous album by the artist. Okay, that was not one of my rules. In fact, I have a few songs that returned to the zeitgeist because of the movie's okay. soundtrack. So it would have been too impossible for me to even begin. I mean, just the amount of, of material that I had to leave off my list, we're going to have to do a part two at some point. Because oh, the amount of absolutely. classic songs and classic movies that I had to leave off here, um, just within ones that were written specifically for the movie. I can't imagine opening it up because, yeah, there are all sorts of iconic songs that were around before and used, you know, very prominently in, in the film itself, but I couldn't go there. Yeah, I, I have a total of two, three, four. If you, if you count my alternates, I have a total of four that um, were released well before the, before the films. So, um, yeah, that was not one of my rules. I It didn't have to be movie-specific or, or made for the film. I had one exception. Uh, it was actually nominated for Best Original Song, uh, as, as many of my choices are or were. Uh, but it was disqualified, and we'll talk about that when I get to that pick. I still feel it fits my criteria, but it was actually disqualified as not being an original song based on some circumstances that happened during the during the 
production of the movie and the, and the soundtrack so Interesting. forth. So, okay. yeah, uh, I think that's. Oh, I just yeah. One other note here is uh, there are a lot of songs I didn't choose. Uh, if, if you haven't listened to our past episodes, uh, you may listen to this week and next week and say, "Boy, it's a crime that we didn't include X, Y, Z." But you have to understand that we used some of these songs right. in the past. So, for instance, "Invincible" from "The Legend of Billie Jean" by uh, Pat Benatar, "Ghostbusters," "Glory of Love" from Karate Kid, "Do I the Tiger." These are all songs that we've already. You know, featured and talked about in previous episodes. Absolutely. Which actually made my choice easier in some cases. It, it did, yeah. <laughs> I, I, like you, I, I'm not ready to repeat songs. There will come a time, I, is, if we continue doing this well into the future, we where thematically a song we've used, I'm sure we'll have to make We'll have to, but there were enough list. choices that yeah, we were um, fine. Yeah. For this one, yeah, no repeats again for this episode. So, like you, one, uh, one song per movie, and... Unlike you, uh, the songs did not have to be specifically written for or featured in, you know, for the film. So in your case, you may have chosen Stand By Me as an example. As an example, yes. Um, And then, again, and this is just a rule of the the podcast itself, of course, it's it's only one song per artist. Right. That was virtual. You want to talk about... Waffling. I kept going back and forth between three different Kenny Loggins songs. The patron saint of 80s movie soundtracks? Oh my God, he's on every one. (laughs) I I didn't pick any in my list because of that. I have one of his in in the alternate pile, just in case you didn't pick one. Okay. Yeah, no, I I went back and forth. There were three, and we'll, we'll talk about the two that I did not use i'm sure but and more than three well no oh, yeah were three, three that, that you chose was, okay yes I, and, yes and literally all three of them i would type up the notes and then i would delete it and i'd put in a different song by him type up all the notes delete it and i kept it like in a cycle i could not make up my mind and then i i feel like i went with the obligatory pick and i'll, I'll leave it at that well i think three of them might be obligatory so i'm not yeah, sure which well, of the three you picked but yeah, it's a good point let me ask you this now we have you know, face-offs when we choose the same artist, and we have face-offs when we choose um, the same song, of course. Are we going to have a face-off if we choose the same movie? You know, I was wondering that as well, because, well, it sounds like you and I both had the same rule that one one song per film. Yep. So I would say... We'll keep it that way? We'll keep it that All way. All right. I'm yeah, prepared to we'll, fight on some of these. Yeah, oh, <laughs> me as well. All right, so I it's side A. I, I begin, yep. if you're ready. Yep. All right, so... My first song selection this week to begin side A is On the Dark Side by John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band from the soundtrack to Eddie and the Cruisers from 1983. Well, that didn't take long. Match already? On my alternates list. Oh, okay. On my alternates list. Yeah. On the Dark Side was written for Eddie and the Cruisers. Um, It was a 1983 movie about a New Jersey bar band. It's actually based on the novel by P.F. Kluge, which I never knew it was mm-hmm. a novel. Yep. Um, now I'm going to have to go and, and pick up the well, book. Well, we, we covered the mo- my other podcast, a movie day podcast. We covered Eddie oh. and the Cruisers. Oh, did you? Right. Okay. So that's how I know it was based on a I remember uh, a novel. introducing you to that one, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'll tell you what. When I was a kid, I, I swore that it was Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band that I was hearing. They're so, John Cafferty is so similar in sound. Right, which I, I didn't know at the time, but of course it was a real band, right. uh, you know, in the Jersey, actually the New England, Jersey area. And uh, they were kind of a Bruce Springsteen ripoff. I mean, they were in many Some of their original respects. songs that were included, of course, on the soundtrack uh, from, the, from their earlier catalog. I mean, they're trying pretty hard to sound yeah. like the boss. No, you're right. But, but good, they're good. Yeah, but no, it, it's based on the novel. Uh, 
But the film explores, as does the book, the formation of a 60s rock and roll band and the release of their big hit and the band's breakup then following a conflict with their label. Michael Perret, who was hot for a moment, he had his 15 minutes and then he just disappeared mm-hmm. from the movie industry. Just like Eddie. Um, but Michael Perret portrayed Eddie in the film, Tom Berenger played his bandmate Frank, and John Caffney and the Bieber Brown Band, they were a bar band from Rhode Island, they supplied the song, which became then a real hit for the real group, portrayed as a fictional band in the film. Uh, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band were not just the musical avatars of Eddie and the Cruisers. They were the very inspiration for the look and feel of the band. The story kind of goes like this. Kenny Vance, who was the music supervisor on the film, met director Marty Davidson at a party, and Davidson told him about uh, this film that he was getting ready to do, Uh, a movie in South Jersey about a rock and roll band in the 60s. As it turned out, Vance himself had been in a rock and roll band in the 60s called Jay and the Americans. Uh, I don't know if you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. come a little bit closer. Mm -hmm. uh, They had a number of hits. And, you know, he used to play with Jay and the Americans. Jay and the Americans used to play the Jersey Shore. So he had the very experience that Davidson wanted. That, in turn, kind of propelled him. Kenny Vance was then hired as the music supervisor. And Vance told Davidson that he still had a lot of photographs of his band from those days in Jersey, and Davidson asked if he could see them. So they arranged for Vance to bring the photos to the production office the next day. Vance shared the photos, included were the band's old Chevy, the U-Haul they used to pull their equipment in, the marquee of a Wildwood venue called the Beachcomber. Oh, yeah. Um, and excited by the photos, Davidson said, let me play you the song, referring to the original version of On the Dark Side, which no one has ever heard. Davidson played Vance the song and then asked, what do you think? And Vance said, it's horrible. Kind of like in the movie. Yeah, very much. <laughs> when Tom Berenger's character first introduces it. Yeah. And, and Davidson asked, well, what do you think it should be? And Vance said, it should be authentic. And before he left the office, uh, Vance was hired then as the supervisor and that night Vance reading the script at home he kept reading it and he kept envisioning a band that he had seen live about a year earlier a band called John Caverty and the Beaver Brown Band couldn't get the idea out of his head out of his head and so he called Davidson and told him I know the real life Eddie and the Cruisers so Vance met with Caverty who read the script then came up with the version of On the Dark Side on the spot playing the song in the style of of Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, Mm -hmm. really. Uh, The band was immediately flown to RCA Studios in New York where they recorded the song. That same night, the Hollywood guys flew in from California because Cafferty was playing a bar in Jersey. And the producers attended the show. They were sold. They had a template for who Eddie and the Cruisers should be, also what the music should sound like. But upon its release, Eddie and the Cruisers was a box office flop. Oh, yeah. I mean, it received many, many negative reviews. The film was pulled from theaters after three weeks, and all the promotional ads were pulled after one week. And the song didn't fare much better. It peaked at just number 64 on the Hot 100. But enter HBO. Yes. A year later, to everyone's surprise, the movie was discovered by a new audience during its first pay cable run on HBO. Word spread quickly, and when released on video cassette, the copies flew off the shelves. So the single was re-released, this time reaching number seven on Billboard. A sequel to the film was greenlit, a sequel that you don't have to know of seeing. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, see Eddie and the Cruisers, forget yes. part two. It's, it's, it's horrible. Um, and then Cafferty and the band 
you know, they got a record deal out of it. They wound up selling almost four million albums. There you go, my first pick well, of the day. Well, the movie is, is somewhat of a cult classic now and very, very difficult to find, as we found out um, on my other podcast when we decided to feature the movie. Um, in fact, I, I don't think it's streaming on any streaming services whatsoever, so you have to buy a physical really? copy on, on the Internet or you know, find other illicit means um, if you know how to do that. Right. Not that I'm endorsing that, I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> that's the only way to, to watch the movie as far as I know. The, uh, the interesting thing is it, we kind of just... It was just kind of a fun episode to talk about. We were do, talking about um, particular 80s movies, and um, it is it is one of the highest ranking um, uh, episodes of the podcast. Really? And I don't know if that's because there just aren't a lot of podcasts out there that talk about Eddie and the Cruiser. Well, I'm sure there are not. But I was shocked. I thought it would be one of our you know lowest uh, download or lowest listened to, but it's actually uh, probably in the top probably in the top five. Oh yeah. I, I'd be willing to bet that Gen X, I mean, it, it's a cult film now, I and mean, it has a huge cult following. Um, and... You know, I, I think some people, it, it, On the Dark Side is an unconventional choice. I think a lot of our listeners may not have expected it or may have forgotten about it, but I think most of them are going to readily agree with me that it deserves a place once, you know, reintroduced to the song. Or all so. those people out there that thought it was another Bruce Springsteen song. Well, yeah, that, that as well. <laughs> right down to the big man in the band. I yes. mean, it's, it's, well, and that was the only member of, of John Cafferty that was actually in the movie. He was the actual right. sax player, and then he played the yeah. fictional sax player as well. Yeah, that's it, it's so Springsteen driven. It, it, it's just uncanny. Yep. So, but in a in a good homage, I will say. Yes. Good homage. All right, great. Well, this is one that's going to be no surprise because um, I don't know if we did it on air or afterwards, but we kind of ended up kind of giving each other an right. idea of what we would include for one song, and so I figured we'd get it. Um, Start with it here right off the bat. This is Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News. Which I pulled from my list when I kind of discerned that it was on yours. The first number one hit for Clover. Uh, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, Huey Lewis and the News. Um, and if you listen to our, our, was it the girls episode, I believe? Uh, no, it was our... Uh, no, it was... Uh, uh, questions, questions episode. Do you believe in love? Then, uh, then you'll know that story. But uh, the song was written and included, uh, written for and included in the classic Back to the Future, appearing prominently in the film in two places. Uh, of course, when Marty skateboards to school, and then when Marty's band, the Pinheads, audition for the Battle of Bands at their school. And, uh, you know, eagle-eyed viewers, or maybe not so eagle-eyed, maybe it's kind of obvious, one of the judges is played by Huey himself, who declares their music just too darn just loud. Just too darn loud. Yes, yep. yes. Um, the song does not specifically relate to the plot of the film, as some of my choices will later on. Uh, Huey did not want to write a song called Back to the Future. So Robert Zemeckis assured him it didn't have to be you know, specifically about the plot, even though he eventually wrote a song wrote called Back, Back in, in Time, Time which right. was used in the closing credits. Um, but anyway, it, it, it just it, at the time, Huey had just gotten remarried, uh, and things were going really, really well, and so he kind of pulled, 
from his from his personal life, and it hit the the you know what's the word I'm looking for? It just hit the the feeling, the vibe the movie was going for. It was right. just a fun, upbeat pop tune that really really fit. The song features 70s R&B band Tower of Power, who provided the horn section during the sports tour and became a prominent part of the band in years to come. You remember Power Tower from the 70s? They had a couple, I, I do. couple hits. Yes, and, they uh, did. And then they be, I think now maybe they're more associated with Huey Lewis and the News than with their, their solo stuff or their so. other stuff. Yeah. Of course, they did a lot of other session stuff as well. The song was nominated for an Oscar, and this is going to be a reoccurring theme, by the way. Right. Uh, how many of my songs were nominated for the Oscar for Best Original Song, but lost. I don't think I picked any of the winners. This one lost to, drum roll, Lionel Richie's Say You, Say Me from White Knights. Yes. Um, man, did I love this song, Power of Love. Um, I'm sure I wore out the 45 that summer of 85. And I, I talked in a previous episode about how 1982 I thought was maybe the best for 80, early 80s music. 1985, for me personally, was the sweet spot for pop music in the 80s. I, I, I would have thought it was earlier, 83, 84, but I'm kind of going through some of these songs, and most of them are movie songs. Man, 1985 was, it was, it was, a, was a big year. Fantastic Including year. Mr. William Joel had his greatest hits album, and, and Second Wind was a hit that summer as well. And She Bob from Cindy Lott. A lot of really, really good songs that yeah. summer. Yeah, yeah and that's, uh, that's Power of Love. So, Well, I, I'll tell you what. I... It was on my list. I pulled it when I, you know, when it was determined that you had it because I thought, well, that gives me an opportunity to pull yet another song. But I, it it was most definitely it was actually my number one pick, like you yeah. <laughs> initially, um, because I I will go on record. Power of Love. I would be willing to say at least f- for my money, it is the. It's I would I would argue it's probably the greatest '80s movie hit. I mean, just for for the entirety of the decade, it's I love in a pop love. sense, yes, yes, yeah. I, I realize, yeah, rock and yeah. In a pop sense, yes, yes. and it's my favorite Huey Lewis in the new song. Mine, mine as well, by far. Yeah, it, it's just I I can't get enough of it. If it comes on the radio, I I mean, I crank it and I jam and I sing along and it's just and it's one my kids know. They've I mean, they've seen Back to the Future countless times, but it's one that you know they will tell you is one of their favorite songs. You know. What sixty years? No, sixty. Sixty years. <laughs> well, I was thinking fifty-five. I was thinking Back to the Future. Oh yeah. So uh, thirty years <laughs> later, um, 
you know, it, it's just uh, Power of Love is just well, phenomenal. And it's, you know, right smack in the middle of the 80s. And I would also say that Back to the Future, to me, is, is one of the top five most iconic movies of the 80s as well. Oh, yes. And that's right dab in the middle of the 80s. So really, Back to the Future is just a lightning rod, excuse the pun, uh, <laughs> for, the, for the greatest fun that the 80s had to offer in a media sense. Yep. 1.21 gigawatts. Yep, yep, yep. yep. You are my density. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's such a quotable film, too. Now, love Back to the Future. All right. All right. Well, my number two here is that obligatory pick by Kenny Loggins. It is not... I, the this, patron saint of 80s yes. music movie. Uh, it, 80s movie music, sorry. Yes. I. This is not... I mean, this morning, I'm telling you right now, this is not the song I want to go with this morning, but this is the song I'm going to go with because I'm, not, I'm done changing and my notes aren't here now for the others. Uh, I would, this morning, just the mood that I'm in, I would go Danger Zone. Really? Okay. Yes, I would go Danger Zone. That is not what I went with. Um, the other one that I really would like to have included comes from Caddyshack. I'm mm-hmm. all right, and that's a match. Okay, so on my alternates list, I told you, you it was match. So that's why I chose for my right. alternates. List. Okay, how do you not pick Caddyshack? Oh well, I, I wanted to just for the gopher alone, but so the soundtrack that has seven songs to pick from. I you yes, choose the Kenny Lofton. No, Kenny Lofton. <laughs> you choose the Kenny Loggins one from that track. I did. Yes, I, I just felt this was this was the seminal hit. That this was the one that really it was. You know, Kenny Loggins will be remembered for all of these uh, cinematic achievements, but Footloose is his calling card, and for that reason, I just I had to. I had to go with Footloose. Which I, means we're going to have a movie face-off later on as well, because I chose one from Footloose as well. Okay. But not Footloose. Gotcha. The title track. Well, I, I'll tell you what. Had I gone with a different track, it would have been Holding Out for a Hero. The reason I didn't go there is because, I, thinking about it, I think that's probably more associated with Shrek 2 now than it is. Was that in Shrek 2? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I just for Jim Stein, I will tell you right now, that is one of my picks. Because of Jim Stein alone. Okay. Because of... You know, I love Meatloaf and Jim Steinman right. and all that. So yeah, I, because I was going to go there, Bonnie Tyler, and then I thought, oh, I you know, especially today's generation, they know that that's. I song don't remember from it from too. Shrek too. Yeah, it's right after uh, Shrek is hu- he's human and okay. he's he's on his steed, which is actually the donkey, and he's going back because he he's going to prove his love for. Okay, yeah. uh, I think no, yeah, of course you are right. Yeah, I just I just, um, and then of course the the other big hit would have been Let's Hear It For The Boy, which I love it, but it's pure. Then Dancing the Sheets from Shalimar. Shalimar, yeah. Um, Almost Paradise, Paradise, which which we already used. used. Uh, And I think, what was the last one? There was one more, like I said, that didn't hit the top 100. I have to go back and see. But uh, it was Mm. was kind of from an obscure artist as well. Okay. Oh, and then um, I'm Free from Kenny Loggins was another one as well. He had two. Wasn't it yeah. Kenny Loggins that I'm free? Yeah, I believe so, but it, it didn't chart. It did chart. Well. Not well. Like, I mean, it, like was, it hit top 40, but it, high yeah, up. Yeah. Because he also had two on the um, Top Gun soundtrack. Yeah, he did. Right. Correct. Well, anyway, I, you know, Kevin Bacon, this was his breakout role. Uh, Rob Lowe and Tom Cruise tried out for the part of uh, the character, but Kevin Bacon won the role. He, he plays a teenager who moves to a small town where dancing is illegal. Which is, you know, such a, a punchline now, really. But Dean Pitchford, who wrote the screenplay to the film and the lyrics to all of the songs in the movie, got the idea from a 1979 newspaper article about a town in Oklahoma called Elmore City where there was a law against dancing on the books. And 
you know, 14 high school seniors decided they wanted a prom and they got the town council to overturn the antiquated uh, introduction so they could dance. And Pitchford, he visited Elmore City to research a screenplay where he spent a week immersing himself in their culture. So Footloose is based on a true story. That that blew my mind because... That didn't I, surprise me. No, well, just the very idea that dancing would be illegal anywhere. To me, that's... Well, I mean, there still are very a lot of very conservative communities in this country today. That, true. Like, like the Ryan true. Murphy film that came out last year, Prom, is basically kind of a remake of Footloose, but from an LBGT standpoint. Right. Um, but you got to imagine in the 80s, and definitely, you know, for 50, 100 years before that, when a lot of the you know, evangelical revivals began to spread, and these small towns did pass a lot of laws that were very much entrenched in, in religion. Well, that's true. But, you know, they make a very good argument in the film for the religious, you know. I, I, still, uh, I still know a few Baptists that may not agree with that. Well, yeah, <laughs> perhaps. Um, but Kenny Loggins, uh, you know, he had previously contributed the theme song I'm All Right uh, for Caddyshack in 1980, a song that reached number seven on the Hot 100. So two years later, Loggins had a hit with Don't Fight It, which he wrote with Pitchford and Steve Perry. Perry actually sang on the track. So getting Loggins for the title track was huge for Pitchford, who had never written a screenplay before and was trying to sell a movie based around nine songs, not a popular concept at the time. And losing Loggins would have derailed the entire project. And when Loggins broke a rib from a fall that he took at a show in Provo, Footloose almost met its doom. Um, Loggins had to take time off to recover, and the only chance for Dean to write with him was during his engagement at Lake Tahoe, Nevada, where he was performing before he headed to the Asian uh, wing of his tour schedule. So Paramount was chomping at the bit. They wanted to know that Kenny Loggins was going to be doing the title song. If he wasn't, then they were threatening to pull out of the project. It became absolutely vital that as soon as Kenny was back on his feet, that you know they sealed the deal, and the only place that that could be sealed was you know going to attempt to get himself back on his feet in Tahoe, to play one last engagement in the States before headlining uh, the Asian tour. And it, it Footloose almost didn't happen, in, in short. And uh, Paramount only agreed to it on really the condition that Logan sing its theme song. Uh, again, it makes sense, though, because, you know, it's a business and they want to make money, right? And yep. so they need some type of proof of concept that they know at least they can bank on. And, and like you say, Ken, Kenny Loggins already had a hit with a movie, MTV was huge. So they yeah. knew they can cross promote it with videos, as we talked about earlier. So it made sense that they wanted some assurance yeah. that it would sell. No, agreed. But just the very idea that a movie is greenlit on the condition that an artist sing yeah. its theme song. Yeah, you know, and it's because the because the movie didn't have any star. Be, I mean, they had John Lithgow, but he wasn't like a box office draw. Correct. The time, and neither was um, Kevin Bacon. So. I mean, had the, had the writer been able to secure an actor, it would have been the actor that would have right. determined the funding and going through. Yeah. So you so, had to have some kind of star somewhere. Yeah. So I mean, just on that pretense alone, I, I went with Footloose because that here is an example no, that of a song sense, yeah. that, yeah. you know, the song sold the film. Mm-hmm. And it's I, it felt obligatory. It, it just did. Uh, this morning, like I said, I'm in a danger zone mood, but I'm all right. Those three songs I cycled and kept replacing one for the other and the next. I, I did it countless times before coming in this morning. So. Well, of course, then uh, Footloose was made into a Broadway musical Correct. a couple decades later, which yep. was pretty popular at the time. We were 
Let's go to 1986. I'm bumping up a year. Okay. Although John Hughes titled his third Molly Ringwald classic after the Psychedelic Furs classic song. We have a match. I'm guessing. Well, I didn't choose. You talked about songs that were not made for the film, but revived them. I thought maybe in addition to Stand By Me, you would have chosen the Psychedelic Furs. No. Pretty in pink. Okay, so that's not the case. So we just have a match match. We don't have a movie match. If if you're going OMD. I, of course, am going OMD. Yes, then yes. We have a, a match. Uh, yeah. Also, although he actually named, um, you know, the film John Hughes, by the way, was a huge new wave alternative music fan in the 80s. And if you've watched any of his movies, you'll know that uh, a lot of artists, both uh, popular and obscure or artists that were popular over in Europe, but not in America would appear. OMD is an example of this. OMD, of course, uh, orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Uh, they were very popular over in Europe. Nobody in America knew who they were. And so John Hughes wanted to use them as well. So he gets the Psychedelic Furs song itself. In fact, the Psychedelic Furs um, actually re-recorded it yeah. uh, for the movie itself. And, and I might have been tempted to pick that one had it been a, an original song. But this one fits perfectly for, for me as well. Um, in fact, this kind of quickly became a defining song of the 1980s. It really did. You know, again, kind of right peak in, in the middle. Um, Hughes asked the band to write and record a song for the new ending that he had to film. So in Pretty in Pink, the original ending, for those of you that have seen the film, um, Ducky wins out. Yes. Okay? So the character of Andy goes after Ducky. But the test audiences would not have it. They wanted, you know, they wanted Blair <laughs> to, Blaine. to win. Blaine. 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 Why did I say McCarthy, Blair? Yeah. Yes, Blaine. Blaine. Sorry. They wanted Blaine uh, to win, uh, you know, the love triangle. So he had to go back and, you know, or decide to go back and, and refilm the ending. Now, I'll, we'll talk about this a little bit today, too. But as movies are sent into post-production, a lot of times they'll use temporary score or soundtrack music. Yeah. Placeholders. Placeholders, right. Until they find the permanent music. And a lot of times they'll show these rough cuts with, you know, placement music or temporary music to the artists themselves well in the last scene the kids were dancing to don't you forget about me which is a song that you said that you were going to include yes. so we know Sim- that's simple minds well. are coming up uh side b and even though i think he wanted to use another song from omd they needed to write a new song that fit 159 beats per minute because that's the same rhythm that had to match the kids that were dancing because they weren't going to you know refilm the dancing scene they were just going to film some other scenes around that right and so um omd who had to leave for tour in like two days uh agreed to write and record a song in 24 hours to the point where i think they recorded a demo and they gave it to a bike messenger who took it to john hughes and then john hughes listened to it uh, you know before the internet and called back and said yes this is good go with it 
unfortunately, even though they took pains to keep it at 159 beats per minute, the editor screwed up. Yep. And it didn't sink anyway. No, the kids are <laughs> dancing. They're they're dancing off beat. Yeah, it, it's it's actually quite comical. Yes. Um, and you know, OMD. So many people in American audiences would I think believe that OMD was a one-hit wonder. They they weren't. No, no, no. They they weren't. They they had a couple of modest hits that that followed um you know here in the states. But you know, McCluskey who um uh, is you know a member of the band, he he's actually said it you know it's it was a blessing to have such a big hit in the US, but it's a shame that it overshadows so many other good songs that American audiences have not heard. He said we have many European fans who hate this song, which I found really interesting. Apparently, in Europe, where you know OMD still has a, a huge, huge following, a lot of I, I guess European fans they really they looked at this as the band selling yeah, out. I can see that, and and just turn against if you leave uh, whenever it, it receives any airplay. Um, but yeah, it, it, this is a song that, without question, it it just it's a defining moment of well, the eighties. And for me, okay, as an individual, for teenage young teenage me, who the summer before was listening to Power of Love, yep. right, as yep. his favorite song, now it was OMD, and so it kind of represented my transition from like pop music uh, to more of the new wave alternative. In fact, I remember I bought the cassette and fun, it's also a transition from, from vinyl to cassette because I had Power of Love on vinyl and I bought the actual cassette of OMD's greatest hits which included If You Leave so my assumption is it was probably an American a compilation to introduce uh, Americans to OMD's you know, earlier catalog which it did for me it, yeah. and I became a fan so yeah this song is very pivotal not only in the in the 80s as, as the 80s begin to change but you know in my life as well so and then the the you know song itself is is about they said you know transitioning from the end of life in high school and the fears of becoming an adult right so it all fits the sweet spot there yeah and you can't you can't talk about the 80s without if you exactly if you leave, don't leave now Please don't take my heart away Promise me just one more night Then we'll go our separate ways We always had time on our sides Now it's fading fast Every second, every moment We've got to We've gotta make it last I touch you once I touch you twice I won't let go At any price I need you now Like I need you then You always said We'd still be friends Someday I suspected that one was going to be a match It was just a matter of who was going to have it first It, it was on side B for me So um no, great choice, if I do say so myself. So I have to go to the alternates list at least one time, but that will be next week's episode. Um, all right, so here's my number three, the very memorable theme song to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. We have a match. We have a match. <laughs> this is going to be a lot of matches today. All right. Uh, the song is played several times to express the feelings of a very frustrated teenager. 
Uh, the movie was a huge hit, and it helped drive the chart success of the song. I'm talking, of course, about Somebody's Baby yep. by Jackson Brown. Yep. It was the only hit from the soundtrack, although Moving in Stereo by the Cars was used in a famous scene and also kind of became associated with the film. Jackson Brown recorded the song for the film because he was friends with its writer, Cameron Crowe. And the song's co-writer, Danny Korchmar, was also friends with Crow. He was working on the song Love Rules for the film with Don Henley when he came up with the framework for Somebody's Baby. Korchmar convinced Brown to finish writing the song and record it for the film. Now, Jackson Brown, he, he wrote the song with Korchmar, who played guitar on, on Running on Empty and Lives in the Balance albums. Uh, Korchmar had the music and then the must be somebody's baby hook and he knew brown could do something special with the song so he he brought what he had to jackson who helped Korchmar complete it uh you know it, it's really just a pop powerhouse mm -hmm. it, it's unlike anything else jackson brown has ever really well I, in the 80s he started to delve more into after this pop material. After, after this, this the success of yes. this song i think convinced him but he didn't even put this on his solo album yeah no he didn't because it was too pop for what he considered yeah. his the representative of his work correct if you don't want to buy the the soundtrack to fast times at richmond high you're only finding the sun's greatest hits correct uh package and you know it's just I, this is a song i've never grown tired of somebody's baby is is to me it's one of the great pop classics of the 1980s Brown has called this an unabashed pop song, and most musicians would want their most popular songs on their albums. Uh, Brown was okay having it on Fast Times at Ridgemont High, the soundtrack alone. And like we said already, it's only found on his greatest hits package. That was against the advice of former label boss David Geffen, who told him he was nuts for giving up the song as a track on his next album. Um, so... Yep, another match. I, we may have a lot of you matches. We may have a lot of matches. So Yeah, I remember hearing this. Um, I, I was oblivious to the movie, by the way, 1982. I was really young then. Yeah, so, yeah I didn't see it in 82. But I remember Q92 was our pop station. Do you remember Q92? WDJQ, yes. And that's where you know they would all the new songs would, would, would premiere. And they had this strange format where they had two new songs and then they would play like an older song, which was kind of cool because it's, that's where I heard like Stairway to Heaven for the first time and a lot of classic songs. There'd right. be two new songs and an old song and a commercial. And they continued that um, format. But I would record a lot of them on cassette tape. But this is one 
probably even before I had my little stereo thing that my dad got me for Christmas one year. Cause I remember I went to Camelot music and I bought the 45 and for whatever reason, this song really resonated with me. And it wasn't because of the, like I said, it was many years later that I was able to sneak it on cable and I didn't have cable. My grandmother did. So I would spend the night at my grandmother's oh, wow. and so I would wait till everybody was in bed. You were introduced to, and then I would sneak down. Grandma's. I'd sneak down and watch all, all the cable that, you know, where I was unsupervised. But, right. Uh, no, I, I just, this was the film, and I did not see it, obviously, in 82, because I was all of, you know, nine, ten years old, but, um, you know, once I hit, like, 14, I was, I discovered Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and it just became, it became an immediate favorite, and this was the film that, you know, I fell in love with Phoebe Cates, and I could not get enough of Phoebe Cates, and whether Gremlins, Private School, Shag, it didn't matter, I mean, she she was she was my major crush for most of the eighties. So well, and, and and this movie still today, I mean, it, it, it's uncomfortable in a lot of spots. It's pretty it, raw. It is, yeah, it's pretty raw, and it's um, very honest. But it's so. very honest, and I think partly it's because Cameron Crowe actually went undercover for several weeks at a high school and pretended to be a student, right? And he, that's where he studied before writing the screenplay. Yeah, but you got to be careful because there's been a lot of news. Have you caught all the articles lately? No, uh, uh, there have been a couple of women. Uh, who have been posing as adolescents going to going to various schools in the country. I've, really? seen, I've seen three or four articles now. Why? I, I do not know. I, it's just, it's very bizarre. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, yeah, when Crow did it, and, you know. Well, I think the administration 80s, was aware of it. Yeah. Obviously, the students and the teachers were not, but I'm pretty right. sure he would have set it up. Maybe yeah. not. Maybe not back then. But, but uh, yeah, either way, it was, yeah, you look that up uh, when I'll you get a chance. Up, yeah. there, there have been some just some adult women posing as teenagers going to schools and they've been arrested and any number of things. It's been in the mm-hmm. news. It's crazy. So, all right, I, I digress. Another, another, <laughs> another match, another match. Yes. All right. Going back now a year back to 1985. It seems like that middle of the decade is a sweet spot for me. Um, is a song that if you are a Bond fan, uh-huh. you are familiar with. Do we have a match on this? Uh, if you, yeah. Yeah, Are you serious, yeah. man? Duran Duran. This is A View to a Kill by Duran Duran from the movie A View to a Kill. Meeting you with a view to a kill Face to face in secret places Feel the chill Nightfall covers me But you know the plans I'm making Still overseas Could it be the whole Of 
all the iconic James Bond themes over the year. You have Live and Let Die, of course, by Paul McCartney. Right. Yeah, For Your Eyes Only, which I believe was Sheena Easton, Nobody Does It Better, Carly Simon, Carly Simon. Yeah. Uh, Goldfinger. You had all these great hits from the Bond movies of the, of the 70s, 60s, 70s, and, and 80s. A View to a Kill was the only one to hit number one in the yep. U.S. of all those songs. And the video was great as well because you had the band playing members of like the spy ring on a covert mission, um, which ends, right? The best part, it ends with a woman kind of coming up to Simon LeBon, who's the front man for Duran Duran. And she says, are you? And he says, Bon, Simon LeBon. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's just right, shooting fish in a barrel there. Thank goodness somebody thought to include that. Uh, the song was number one on the charts during Live 8. Yeah, oh yeah. And Duran Duran played Live Aid. So, of course, they're going to play the number one song um, at the time, at least in the U.S. I'm not sure if it was number one in the U.K. at the time, but they, they performed that. And uh, I don't know about you, but I actually went through a, a Bond phase uh, about just before this time. Okay, so, again, I talked about how my grandmother was the only one to have cable, and she only lived a block away. So she had cable, so I'd go over there and watch cable, uh, MTV, and, and so forth. They also bought the first VCR in the family. Okay. And so a family friend was a huge Bond fanatic and, and Star Trek fanatic. So I never became a true Trekkie, but we would go see the movies together. Um, but she was a huge Bond fanatic, and she also had a VCR, and I think she had HBO since, since its inception. So she had taped just about every single James Bond film on, on video cassette and gave them to me. So one summer, probably was like 82, 83, one summer I watched every single Bond film all the way through. Huh. And right after, or shortly after, of course, View to a Kill comes, comes out, it ties in with one of my favorite bands at the time, which is Duran Duran, so like it was a match made in heaven. So it would have been, what, 83, 84 that you... Probably around that were, time. ...were watching yeah, the films? Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it, it's... You know, a View to a Kill, not one of my favorite Bond films. But, no. But no. I would say this ranks at number two for me. Live and Let Die is the only one that I would rank higher on the, on yeah, the Bond Yeah, Live and list. Let Die is classic. Um, and, you know, the story behind this that I, that I found... Uh, according to bassist John Taylor, was that he approached the Bond producer. Yeah, yeah, he was a huge uh, Bond fan. Albert right. Broccoli, uh, while extremely intoxicated uh, when they were both at a party. Um, you know, he stated that he was a longtime fan, and, and you know, he really is, because Taylor, he's, he's, a, he's a self, uh, you know, how do I want to say this? Right. Self-described Bond aficionado. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, he's, a, he's a major Bond geek, uh, would be more accurate. Um, he actually has an Aston Martin. I mean, it was the, the first major purchase that he made after becoming a rock star, if you will. And he frequently mentioned, you know, Bond video collections in, in interviews at the time. But anyway, yeah, he actually approached, uh, you know, the Bond, the Bond production team and said, uh, you know, I want to record a Bond song. I believe he said too. He said, "Why don't you record a good a Bond good, song?" Yes. He was, yeah, I found a, that. a lot of like the Carly Simon, Sheena Easton were slower ballads, and I yeah. think he wanted uh, he wanted to give them a reason to hire Duran Duran. Right? Yeah, he had said most of them had been me- mediocre, and that you know his band would fix that problem. So, and and Duran Duran was was you know tapped to to go ahead and do just that. This was the last single by Duran Duran though before they, they took off a bit. took time off to pursue side projects. Uh, John and Andy Taylor joined Robert Palmer of course Power to Station. form Power Station, mm-hmm. and Simon Lebon, Nick Rhodes, and Roger Taylor they formed Arcadia. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's oh, this one is and they got back together later. They, they had did a few yeah, hits in the nineties, early nineties. But yeah, View to a Kill it is just. It is such a great tune. 
it it really is so well and and the and the kind of i'm not sure i forget his name now but the composer that was responsible for most of the bond scores actually worked with duran duran on the song duran duran wrote the song but he uh, orchest he he i guess arranged the orchestration right to give it that feel especially the beginning of the song has that bond feel to oh it. And it really does i mean it, it talk about a song that comes right out of you know the instrumental i mean it's 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 virtually perfect yeah so all right all right so what is that that was a match fourth, fourth <laughs> match um <laughs> but, a couple, but, but a couple, so far couple you have been alternates you have to pick two though i don't have to yeah. pick any yet okay well <laughs> um both of those were on side b though so i don't ah, have to okay. pick anything this gotcha this week yet um all right well here's my number four maybe now you'll get to go to your alternates list um as we've already said, MTV was picking up steam in America, and movie producers started pulling extra effort into their soundtracks, as a properly placed original song would become a huge hit for, for a blockbuster film, and you know it just created that nice bit of synergy. A great example of this is Beverly Hills Cop, which gave us Neutron Dance, it gave us New Attitude, it gave us Axel F, it also gave us my next selection, which is The, the Heat, Heat is, is On, which I didn't pick because I knew you'd have it. Oh, really? Yep, okay. I didn't pick anything from Beverly Hills Cop because really? I knew you'd have it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and no, I, I went Glenn Fry. Um, the Heat is On, it was written for the film uh, by Harold Faltermeyer and Keith Forsey. They needed a popular artist to sing it, and the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack album was on MCA Records, which Glenn Fry had recently signed with. So MCA asked several of their male rock singers to audition for the lead vocal for the song. At first, Fry thought uh, this wasn't something rock stars did, but he decided to go along just for fun, never thinking that they would pick him. Uh, Faldermeyer was impressed with Fry's vocal, though, and um, basically he was he, he shocked Fry by by using his version. It was Fry's biggest solo hit, reaching number two in the U.S., where it was stymied by Ario Speedwagon's "Can't Fight This Feeling." Um, the music video for the song was one of the first to use clips from a movie, as we've you know already mentioned, interspersed with performance footage, and it did very well on MTV. But you know it never hurt to put Eddie Murphy on television in the '80s. In an interview uh, with Rolling Stone, Fry talked about how he ended up recording the song. Uh, the Eagles had broken up uh, in the you know it's now the mid '80s and. Um, Fry's manager called him up and said, Glenn, you, you got to come to a screening. We're going to show this movie, this Eddie Murphy movie. It's going to be huge. You've got to get a, a song in it. Come on. So Fry went to the screening. He's sitting there. And, uh, you know, he looks over one shoulder. There's Quincy Jones. He looks over the other shoulder. There's Stevie Wonder. He looks back uh, to the, the back of the room. There are the Pointer Sisters. And, and he really, he was sitting there thinking, I'm dead. There's no way I'm getting a song in this film but of course he he did um he almost did not accept the offer though because when he first heard it you want to know what band he actually recommended sh to perform the song what band yeah you listen the news you got it yeah fry actually said why this this should be a huey lewis yeah song. it kind of sounds like a huey lewis yeah he song. said you know it just sounded like a huey lewis thing the saxophone in yeah. it especially yeah definitely but um, yeah he actually recommended Huey Lewis but the well MCA said no we want you and so Fry he recorded it and um, you know he said quote I, I came in I sang it one day I played guitar and did background vocals the next I got a small check I think 15 grand 
I had a little Christmas money. I was happy. The heat is on. mentioned like me in a room Quincy Jones and the Pointer Sisters the smart thing they did for in this example Beverly Hills Cop and in Footloose and others they made sure that the soundtrack was diversified which which was smart right um, you think about it on, on Footloose you had somewhat of a pop rocker like Footloose you had Let's Hear for the Boy, which was pure kind of R&B pop. Right. Shalimar was really the R&B choice on that one. You know, you had, uh, what am I, um, yeah, we just talked about Holding Out for a Hero with Bonnie Tyler. Right. And so you, you really tried to appeal to all the different demographics that you wanted to come see your movie. And so it makes sense they would have a, a Glenn Fry representing what we now would call classic rock, Pointer Sisters, and, and so on. And then even an instrumental, which became a hit, Axel F. Yeah, Axel F was huge. I remember watching the movie for the first time. I think I saw the movie before I bought the soundtrack. And I remember just loving that song. I might have actually bought the soundtrack for Axel F. Yeah, no, it, it was huge. It was Harold Faltermeyer, you know, just on the sense, but that song was everywhere. No, now Fry had another major hit based on a project, now, in this case, a TV show. Oh, my Miami Vice. Smuggler's yeah. Blues. Yeah. yeah. Well, and You Belong to the City. Both, oh, that's right. Both were on that soundtrack. Yeah, You Belong to the City. And, and he, had, he had one other major soundtrack hit in the late 80s. I think it was late 80s. It might be early 90s. Uh, from Thumb and Louise. You're oh, a, yes. I'm a part of you. You're a part of me. Which sounded very eagles It did. Yeah, it was I, very, I thought at first the Eagles had gotten back together. Yeah, it was very much in that vein. But yeah, no, The Heat is On. It was a huge... Huge hit for him, the biggest of his career. Maybe Smuggler's so. Blues wasn't from. Maybe it was just "You Belong to the City." Maybe Smuggler's Blues was on a, a well, both, solo. Well, both were they both okay? Both both were on the Miami. Which was another soundtrack, soundtrack I had on on yeah. vinyl. They're both on the soundtrack. Whether or not you know one was perhaps recorded prior, yeah. I, I don't know. You had John Hammer on there, which was a hit. The yep. theme. You had Phil Collins in the air tonight, which that kind of the resurgence of that song. Absolutely. So yeah. All right, you're up. All right, great song. I knew you'd have it. Or, well, I figured you probably didn't have the Pointer Sisters. Although I, I uh, like that song, too. It's fun. Yeah. No, I didn't have It's a good aerobic. Yet. We're going to talk about aerobics music here later. It's a good aerobics, aerobics. song. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So most of these movies I've seen, um, I like movies. I've seen a lot of movies. But there are some on here that I haven't. Movies that I didn't see back then, and they haven't crossed my path since and maybe never felt a reason to see the movie, especially if the movie wasn't well received, okay? Okay. And here's a good example of that, where I loved the song. Now, I never bought it. So I, I, I loved the song for whatever reason. I didn't go out and buy this one. Maybe at this point I was recording music uh, off Q92. That's probably the case. Um, but uh, this was 
I Can Dream About You by Dan Hartman. You've never seen Streets of Fire? Never saw Streets of Fire. Oh, one of my favorite really? 80s we'll see, films. now I need to see it. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not good. Okay. But that's what makes it so great. It's D- Diane Lane, never looked hotter. Okay, and and Michael Prey, again, plays uh-huh. the, the lead. Um, Rick Moranis is in uh-huh. it. He, he actually is the... Uh, Diane Lane's manager. No, Streets of Fire. Okay, all right. See, so you've convinced me. It, it is, uh, as I said, don't don't go in expecting you know great cinematic achievement. But it, it's it was one of my favorites as a kid. I loved this movie. Well, I wasn't going to share that. Oh, this is probably why I never bought the forty five. I wasn't going to share this. I shared this with my wife yesterday, and she advised that I not share this because it makes me look really. Well, very much a geek, which, of course, I am and was. But I remembered... You're preaching to the choir. I was wondering so. at one point, you know, when I was at this point, maybe it was 13 years old, 12 years old, whatever. I was wondering, like, how many times a person hears a particular song, right? Like, how many times have you heard Let It Be in your life, right? Uh, yeah. And so I thought to myself, oh, okay, so the next time I hear a song on Q92 that I kind of like for the first time, I'm going to count and keep track of in a notebook every time I hear that song. <laughs> really? So I probably didn't buy it because I wanted to you know, count how many times I heard it on the radio. I think somewhere around 165, I, I lost track and, and okay. realized what I was doing was a big waste of time. Interesting. But <laughs> this was the song, that and Loving Every Minute of it from Loverboy Lover was another Boy. one I did that. Anyway, um, yes, so this song has a weird history. It really, yeah, because... Is this one of your picks? No, no, no. Okay. It, it was, and then I, I cut it. Okay. So... Well, uh, Jimmy Iovine, one of the huge uh, influences um, and producers of Bruce Springsteen's work, and of course then became a mega producer in the 70s and 80s, and then an American Idol judge, still still doing stuff with Dr. Dre. Um, Jimmy Iovine approached Dan Hartman to write a song for the movie Streets of Fire, which I mentioned I had not seen. And the movie, apparently, um, features a tempta- Temptations-like band that would perform the song. Yeah, they're, they're very doo-wop. So these, these four black guys yeah. were going to perform this song. Um so Hartman actually had been kind of working on a song and he kind of tailored it to this and he recorded it. But he was smart because he added something to the to his contract, a little clause of the contract that I don't think a lot of people saw originally. And it said, if this song ever is released as a single or if there's a video made of the song, it would be him singing the song right and not the artists in the movie yeah because it it, it is a different version it of is a film. different version and so they, the, they completed the movie they went through the screen tests and they realized oh my gosh this is this is going to be a hit so they went ahead and recorded the video with the actors that are in the movie and so the director directs this video with these like i said these four black guys and a temptations type thing where they're you know kind of dancing and singing doo-wop style sort of and, you know, he submits his video. And then he watches it on TV a couple months later, and it's Dan Hartman singing. Right. And, and, and he's, you know, overdubbed to the artist from the movie. And he's, his mind is blown because he's like, when I made this video, it was something completely yeah. different. So they're lip syncing yes. to a song they were not They were not lip syncing. Correct. It's, yeah, it's, it's crazy. And the director said that uh, at that point, quote, Hollywood is a very, very slippery place. <laughs> Because Dan Hartman was was smart, I kind of feel bad for for the actor and actors that uh, performed that, but uh, yeah. you know he made a lot of money from this. No
really excited that you included it because it, it was on my list for the longest time. All right, well, here is my first of those tunes that were not uh, written for the film. Uh, in fact, this one was released in 1963, and it reached number 13 on the charts. Um, you know, well, let me let me take a, t- a step back. Two words that define the zeitgeist of summer 1986 were save Ferris. Mm. Okay, it is one of the greatest school comedies of all time. Uh, it's one of those rare films where the hero is the villain. I mean, really, Ferris is not, you know, a very admirable, he's very charismatic. I don't know that he's a very admirable character because there comes a time, and I've noticed this, there, there are three stages in life, you know. There, you, for a short while, you want to be, and you realize that you are Ferris. Then you realize that you've, you've grown a bit and suddenly you're Cameron. And then I find now I've grown and suddenly I'm Rooney. You know, I thought you were going to say the sausage. Uh, uh, the host- sausage king. king yeah. <laughs> or the hostess, uh, the snooty hostess. At no, the, no, no. It, it's just, it's <laughs> really. Rooney, that's the worst one to be. It would. At least be Ferris's dad. Well, he was kind of cool. Well, yeah, he was also kind of an ignoramus. But, but yeah, yeah, he, yeah, was, yeah. He, he was still dancing. So was Rooney. So. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. But one, no, I mean, Rooney, especially as an educator, Rooney was just trying to do his job. Yeah. You know? But I, I am not in any way, uh, you know, speaking ill of Ferris because he was my hero at, at the time that this film came out. Um, you know, it's really ironic given that the title character is truant throughout, though. I mean, he's just not, you know, I wouldn't say he's a, a great role model. Um, as for Generation X, I, I think it's impossible to dissociate the film um, with a particular song that was originally written by German band leader Bert Kempfert with lyrics by Kurt Schwebach and Milt Gadler. Well, wait a minute. You're not going to go with the one I'm assuming you're going to go with. Well, let's, let's see. Well, Kempfert yeah. first recorded the song in 62 for his album Living It Up, but it was Wayne Newton's version. Yeah, you're not, you're not going with the Beatles' Twist and Shout. I That's the not, one I associate with the parade. That is, I'm not going Twist you're and Shout. You're going with Donkashane. And I, I'm going Donkashane, and I'll tell you why. The Beatles have never left the zeitgeist. True. This is an example okay, where, okay. and it was not written for the film, Yeah, no, but I Generation yeah. X, we would never, no, that's true. never know this song had it Maybe not that would have been a good thing. Well, <laughs> arguably. No, no. Um, but no, Duncan Shane was, I mean, you're talking, it might as well have been written for the film because our generation, we know it only. It's kind of a random choice, isn't it? What do you mean? Well, like, why did John Hughes choose? Oh, oh, I see. What you, I thought you meant why. Did no, I no, no, no. Like, like, why did <laughs> like, he choose? I, you know, I don't know. But we find out early in the film that Ferris is a fan because he sings it in the shower. Right, right. You know? um, I, I don't know. It's it's such an odd. Yeah, it really is. You're right. It's, it's an odd choice, Dunkashin. Um Yeah, no, the Beatles. I, you know, Twist and Shout. Yeah, it, you know, one song follows the other in the parade. But Twist and Shout. I mean. Twist and Shout is a song I can add to any of our episodes at True. any time. No, that's, I'm not. And, I just yeah, no, no, no. I but, wasn't even thinking. I was just thinking Twist and yeah. Shout though. That but Duncan Shane, I, I, you know, to me, this is this is one of those songs that kind of defines the film because it's so it's it's film film exclusive or film specific, I suppose. Yeah. In German, Duncan Shane means literally "thank nice," <laughs> which is the equivalent to "thank you very much," of course. Capitol Records originally wanted Bobby Darren to record the song as a follow-up to Mac the Knife. Uh, but Darren felt that his protege had the perfect voice for the track 
And Bobby Darren even threatened to never record for the label again if they would not release Newton's version. Um, now, now here's the thing. Wayne Newton, I, I can't say I'm a huge fan, but my grandfather was. My grandfather loved Wayne Newton. He had all, all of the albums. Along with Beverly D'Angelo. <laughs> Vegas Vacation. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, no, my, my grandfather loved Wayne Newton. So I used to hear, I knew this song before Ferris Bueller. And I would probably go out on a limb and say I'm probably one of the few Gen Xers who can say that. I, I don't know how many. I, I didn't know the song yeah, until. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, Matthew Broderick's lip sync performance while riding atop the float in the Chicago parade. I mean, it just brought the song to life. Dark as shame, darling, dark as shame. Thank you for all the joy and pain. Picture show, second balcony. Was the place we'd meet, second seat. Gold Dutch treat, you were sweet. Dark as shame, darling, dark as shame. Save those lies, darling. Why not add a bit of old Vegas to the mixtape? Yeah, you know, I'm yeah. getting ready to go to Vegas with the wife, and I'm like, well, we'll go with. No, that works. I think I think Mr. the listeners Vegas. will be pleased with that choice. Yeah. So, you're up. Well, I mean, we talked about last week. I normally only have four alternates, and you said you added a lot more than you normally add. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of alternates. I added one extra, thinking it was overkill. I don't know now because my next one, somebody's baby, you've already chosen. So if I go to my alternates list. And my first one is I'm All Right by Kenny uh, Loggins, which I can't use because we've well, already you, used. You can. We can have a face-off. No, off. no, no. Not, I, I don't think a face-off should count if it's an alternate. Gotcha. If okay. they were on our main list, That's we'd fair. have a face-off. We've, we've never done that, so I right. didn't know what the right. rule was on that one. Um, so um, I can't use that one. Um, then my next alternate was On the Dark Side by John Caffrey okay. and the Beaver Brown Band. Uh, so that leaves me with uh, th- three more alternates, hopefully, that can um, you know hold me through the rest of this. If not, I'll pick one of your alternates. I think I did that one one episode. Uh, I am going to go with, okay, a song. Okay, I'm going to choose this one because this is a song that I went back and forth it was on my list. It wasn't. It belongs on my list. The only reason I took it off is because there are, there's another power ballad on there, and the song I replaced it with on side B um, kind of kind of fit a different vibe that I was looking for. So we're going to go with "Against All Odds." Take a look at me now by Phil Collins. Ah, uh, great Match? song. No, no, oh, okay. not a ma- no. I was I was I intentionally left it off because oh. I was thinking when we get to the breakup, uh, yeah. our breakup episode. That it was a 
top contender. I forgot about that. Sorry, I stole that from the oh, breakup. No, that's <laughs> okay. There are plenty of breakup songs. I almost, <laughs> I, you know what, though? I, I ended up bouncing off my list for the reasons I just mentioned, thinking for sure that you would have it. So yep. I'm glad I'm glad this worked out. Okay. Yep. No, that's why I left it off. So, so 1984 from Against All Odds. Uh, another movie, by the way, which I never saw, and I'm told that the song's much better than the movie. Oh, yeah, the movie is Jeff not, Bridges. Yeah, which is really sad because I'm a huge Bridges fan. It's just... How do you go from that to, like, the it, dude? Yeah, it's just not a memorable <laughs> film, really. Right. Um, but yeah, because he's he's if I remember correctly, he's pretty pretty in shape and on the beach. Oh yeah, Cause, well you know why? Because the video tie-in. The only thing I know about the movie is the video right. tie-in, and at first I didn't even know it was Jeff Bridges. Yeah, you know? that that and there's a scene in the film that's I, I don't know if it was paying homage to uh, from here to a Oh the, right, right, you know, in the ocean. rolling on the sand and, and whatnot. Right. But, um, yeah, I saw the film once years ago. I I don't even remember much I, I couldn't tell you the plot and that's how yeah. memorable it was so well this is the uh, the first of seven number one hits for phil collins of course phil collins was with genesis since the uh, late 60s uh, always had a hand in you know genesis wrote as a band but uh unfortunately around the time right before uh, i believe it was um, duke in 1980 uh, was released by genesis uh, phil and his wife had a horrible horrible breakup and he started time, trying to cope with that by sitting in his piano and writing music. And he never really expected to have a, a solo career. If it did, he said it would have been something jazzy. And there are jazzy elements on his solo records. But sure. he ended up writing some, some very uh, therapeutic songs. Well, In the Air Tonight was one of them. And so. <laughs> he came up with, with enough to release a yeah. solo album, which was, of course, this, uh, Face uh, was it Face Value it was the first one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah in in 81. Uh, he, this was one of the songs that he had written during that batch of songs, but he didn't feel it was strong enough because there were other ballads on the record, so he left it off. And then he came out a couple years later with Hello Must Be Going. It didn't make that record either. And so it kind of was just part of the you know outtake bin, and he had, he had forgotten about it. And you know, fast forward here a few years to 1983 or so. He's on tour with Genesis. He gets a call from the producers of this movie against all odds. And they said, hey, we will pay you a handsome sum. Um, because I think at this point now he had had a string of, of hits. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you would write um, a song for this movie. And so they sent him a video cassette. So he's in a hotel room on tour watching a rough cut of this. And uh, he decides to... Uh, go back and, and find the song he'd written and kind of retailer it uh, for the movie and that was his first number one how can i just let you walk away just let you leave without a trace when i stand here taking every breath with you Ooh. you're the only one who really knew me at all Shed the laughter and the pain 
it was nominated again. Here's my theme nominated for a best original Oscar, original song Oscar, but it loses. Well, guess what it lost to? Uh, 83? No, 84 actually 84. was the. Um, oh. The song makes me shudder because I hate it so much. I'm trying to think. 84 would have. It was in The Woman in Red. Uh, yeah, I, I was just going to say it's. I just called I just called to say I love you, you from. Which is ugh, awful. Shudder. Awful. Yeah. Now, he would eventually win an Oscar for Best Original Song for You'll Be My Heart from Tarzan. Oh, yeah. Another big shudder yeah. for that song. Yeah. Because that's when Phil, to me, went in so far into the adult contemporary category that I no longer recognized him. Well, in fairness, though, that started with But Seriously. I mean, you know. But that's a great album. It is a he great album. He was on album. the right side of adult contemporary. Yeah. No, He's on the Clapton album. side of adult contemporary. Agreed. Agreed. And then he, he goes to the other yeah. side. Now, I love But Seriously, but that, that was when you could denote the, the very significant change. Which no, I love I love Phil. I, I I have tickets to see Genesis when they come to Cleveland, so it's it's all good. Well, I don't know what he was thinking, or maybe he retooled the melody. But why he left this off of uh, his first solo album, it doesn't make any sense. I love obviously in the air tonight. It's a classic song, uh, and the other songs are good on the album. But this one, it's the phenomenal. melody it is, is incredible. One one of Phil's greatest melodies yeah. of all, and it's it's a gut wrenching too. Gut wrenching, yeah, gut wrenching. Like I said, it was a top contender for. And, it's fine that you took it because there are plenty of breakup songs out there. But no, that's why I left it off was I was thinking I would use it for that, for that purpose. And no, it it is just, it is an amazing song from a very, very mediocre film. So what, what I noticed as a kid and now it makes sense now that I read a little bit about the song in the song, he says it's against the odds and not all. And I'm why does he say all odds? That's the name of the film. And I guess the producer was really annoyed by that as well. But Phil said, "Well, he does. He say does it eventually in, he, he later in, in the song. In, later in the song. Yeah. But he felt uh, that that the instead of all kind of rolled off the tongue a little bit better. So it was his compromise where early on he would say the odds and then come back and, and accentuate that. So all right, good. I'm glad. I'm glad that got on the list. Okay. Well, my final alternate. Um, Is this your final pick, number six? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and jump in with an alternate. Okay. Right. Um, I was gonna save them both for next time, but I'm gonna go ahead and use it here um, because this was a song that I think a lot of our listeners, I, I think you know, we we might lose some of our <laughs> listeners if one of us does not include this song. Um, and I wanted to, I just it didn't fit in my twelve, so I'm gonna throw it in right here, right now. Um, so it was actually my final alternate selection. Uh, it's featured in the climactic scene of the 1987 movie Dirty Dancing. Okay. Now, early on, a Lionel Richie song was slated for the big dance scene in the movie. Uh, but the film's choreographer, Kenny Ortega, he bumped it in favor of the very last song demo on the very last tape that was submitted on the very last day for the movie's final scene. It was a song that they came across titled... I've had the time of my life. And it was decided on first listen that this would be the song that they would use. So Lionel Richie was out. Uh, The movie was actually filmed out of sequence, and the finale was the first scene shot. Apparently, there was a a lot riding on getting the scene right. Director Emil Ardolino believed that it was crucial that Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey uh, develop an immediate camaraderie, and he believed that this song was a big part in helping them to do just that. But the song almost didn't happen. Uh, the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, which was produced by Jimmy Enner, uh, you know, who thought of songwriter Frankie Previtt uh, when he needed songs for the movie. Previtt received a call from Jimmy uh, Enner, who was head of Privet's label 
Millennium Records, and Inner asked Previtt to write a song for the film, and Previtt told him no. <laughs> he just said no. He told Enner that he didn't have the time, and Enner said, make time, this could change your life. So, working with music composed by John DeNicola and Don uh, Marowitz, Previtt wrote the lyric and melody for the chorus against his wishes while driving along the Garden State Parkway on his way to a studio session for another song. So most pop songs don't start with the chorus, right? But this song had to fit some specific criteria for the movie. It had to start slow, finish fast, had to have a mambo beat. And the scene was seven minutes long, so they needed a song to be just as long. Previtt started the track with the chorus up front and halftime to create a slow mood before the downbeat of the verse. But not only did the songwriter not want to write the song, singer Bill Medley didn't want to record it. I don't blame him. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm sorry. I know this had to be on there. I'm glad you picked it because people need to hear it. Yeah. But, but Medley, <sighs> Medley wasn't interested in recording a soundtrack single because he had already tried it once. He recorded a duet with Gladys Knight for the Sylvester Stallone film Cobra. Oh, gee. <laughs> and not only did the film bomb, but so too did his song. So he said he would never do another soundtrack song. It also didn't help that Medley thought the title of the film, Dirty Dancing, sounded like a bad porno movie. <laughs> So three months of constant pressure from Enner didn't change Medley's mind until a scheduled recording session was moved from New York to L.A. and Jennifer Warnes si- agreed to sing in the session. Which she had already done up where we belong where we from belong with Officer and Gentleman. Yeah. So Medley was a huge Warnes fan, which swayed his decision. And, um, you know, Warnes compared singing with Medley to dancing with Fred Astaire. You know, while Bill Medley is best known for being one half of the Righteous Brothers, Warren's, yeah, like you said, experienced her biggest success with duets. Uh, in the end, Enter won, and the payoff was well worth his battles. I've had the time of my life, won the 1987 Grammy Award for Best Vocal Performance by a duo, and the Oscar for Best Song, and the Dirty Dancing soundtrack stayed at number one on the Billboard charts for 18 straight weeks. Since its release, it has sold over 48 million copies. Now, as an aside... In the interim, when Medley refused to record the song, Enner turned to Joe Bean Esposito. Oh, geez. <laughs> um, and Esposito was, was hired to record the song with Donna Summer. But poor Esposito lost out again because Summer, like Medley, thought the, fil- the title of the film sounded pornographic. It is kind so, of a righteous brother-y kind of So now yeah. that I think about it, yeah, it, it, it is. does. It works. So when Donna Summer said, no, I'm not going to do it, uh, they they hired Warns to sing, and she refused to sing with Esposito. She wanted to sing only with Bill Medley. So Esposito was out again, much as he had been with Rocky. He was supposed to have originally uh, sing this. Uh, oh, that's right. He lost. Duet. He lost. Uh, what was the song? Oh, you're the you're best. The best. Was he lost to be Rocky. Uh, for yeah, Eye of the Tiger. Rocky three. Um, so yeah, he was supposed to have. have yeah, he was supposed to sing. Uh, I've had the time. Yeah, no, it, it, well. it's, it's a righteous brother song. It, it, it really is. It, it belongs to Bill yeah. Medley, yeah. and I can see why he didn't want to do it. I'm just, he's glad he did. I'm sure. Yeah, he yeah. Was, if not already, set for life financially after exactly. that. Exactly. Like yes, and I owe it all. Close 
All right, so it's my final choice? It is. All right, so got to go with the big one here. Close out with the big one. Okay. Uh, arguably the greatest, one of the greatest songs of the 80s, arguably the greatest 80s movie song. Okay. We've already talked about it a little bit. Okay. Purple Rain. Okay. Do we have a match? Um, yes, but it's, it's you again, went with Dove's, Did you go with when Dove's Cry? No, no, no. I, I went Purple Rain. Oh, okay. I went Purple Rain. No, I was just going to say it's on my side B. Ah, okay. Every, every one that you've taken has been on side B. I'm sorry, man. B. But it's okay. <laughs> I have plenty of alternates. That's why I, that's why I came, in, came in with so many this time. Um, no, Purple Rain was... actually I, I close out side B with Purple Rain. Okay. Which you probably should close out the entire mix. Yeah. So. Maybe, I knew, maybe I figured you'd do that and I wanted to steal it. <laughs> no, this... Um, yeah, okay. So, yeah. 1984, Purple Rain. We kind of already talked about it a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, so if like if you leave from OMD from um, Pretty in Pink was pivotal in, in in the ending of that movie, this song is is pivotal to Purple Rain. I like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Was not I like with Fast Times at Ridgemont High was not allowed to watch Purple Rain. Right. And I all I knew from the movie again were from the. Uh, cut-ups from the, from the film that were included in the video from especially boys I think um, for When Doves Cry there were a lot of oh, yeah, yeah. clips from the film yeah and so I wasn't able to watch it for whatever reason I don't know if it was on cable or was not on cable or whatever I just by the time I was an adult and could have watched it I didn't care anymore I, I promised myself at the time I cannot wait till I'm 17 because I'm going to go I'm going to watch Purple Rain because I was so mad and then I just completely pretty much forgot about ever seeing the movie and then, about 10 years ago, on this new invention at the time called Netflix, mm. I was kind of looking for a film and Purple Rain popped up. I'm like, okay, I promised myself, my you know, 12-year-old self, that I would watch Purple Rain sometime before I died, so I watched And it was good. It, it's, an, it's an incredible It's a solid film. movie. Yeah. No, it's an amazing film. So at the end of the movie, this song is pivotal because we won't go into the whole plot of it, but... You know, he, he works with these two other members of his band Wendy who write the song that yeah. he dismisses. Wendy and Lisa, yeah. Right. And then, of course, he has his character arc, and by the end of the film, um, comes out and plays the song that they wrote, gives them credit as well, and it becomes kind of the catharsis of the entire movie, this song. Um, this song, which, you know, and, and Prince is a genius, um, from what I understand, there are more unreleased songs since his death, things that he just never recorded or never um, released. He he is very much like a Springsteen. He is. He he just he wrote and wrote just, and wrote but, music. Yeah, but and Springsteen, of course, didn't share a lot of it either. But I think even to a greater extent, Prince did not. You know, he was really concerned about 
his artistic sense versus the commercial side of it. Um, yeah, and of course he had he had his issues he was dealing with as well. But um, but this song, he actually recorded the song live. No. This is actually recorded live. Yeah. He went in the studio later and did a few overdubs, but this is a live performance that they captured on, on, on tape. And he said, yeah, this is good. And yeah. it, it just, that's unheard of. Um, you know, Neil Young did a little bit of that in the seventies with, with some of his stuff, but you know, usually you go into a studio where you have a lot of control and you can take multiple takes and you can, you know, do the engineering magic. So it just shows you the talent, not only of, of Prince, but uh, of, I don't think it was the revolution at this time, but his uh, his backing band. Oh no! Um, was yeah, it? no, it was revolution. Was it for, okay? Yeah, Prince and the Revolution. Now the song originally was written. Uh, he wanted to do a duet with Stevie Nicks. Yeah, which she thinks may have been because he wanted to, you know, date her, sleep with her. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, he writes this. He sends it to her. At the time, he wants it to be a country song. I'd love to hear this version, this demo, this country right. demo of Purple Rain. Um, but she recognized the genius of the song originally and was completely overwhelmed and said, I, I don't even know what to do with this song. It's too big. You know, it's too epic. And so she, you know, decided that, that she would not. And so he, he didn't get to date Stevie Nicks. Um, but, of course, then the song, thankfully, didn't become a country Prince, <laughs> Prince song. Thankfully. The name uh, actually comes from the uh, Venture Highway song. From America, I'd always known the Purple Rain lyric, but yeah, that's actually yeah. where he he got it. Um, and the song itself is is another po- like another apocalyptic song. So you remember 1999, which is about the world ending. In fact, he even says the sky was all purple. purple. Yeah. There were people running everywhere, and he said the idea of, of Purple Rain comes from the fact that you have a blue sky with blood in the sky, which makes purple, and it's kind of about like enduring, you know, Armageddon with someone you love. Mm-hmm. Which I never got from the song. I'm not a lyrics person, but I don't know if I've ever ever would have. The song does not appear that dark. I mean, right. It's clearly about uh, missed opportunity and you know lost love. But um, it, I found the same thing doing my research. But I, yeah, I definitely. I don't know that, that that's necessarily <laughs> inherent. In, that's in a bit lyrics. dramatic. Um, we talk, I think, at least once on the show about uh, Pitchfork. Maybe we didn't. Pitchfork uh, oh, media. Yeah. The snobbiest, I still read them all the time, but the snobbiest uh, music review site out on the internet, uh, they named this song, ready for this, the best song of the 80s. I could see that. You know, so that's high, yeah. that's high praise coming from, I see it. Uh, especially, I mean, Pitchfork will love you until you get, find commercial success and then yeah. they'll, 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 you know, stab you in the back. Yeah. And, and the fact that this was a commercial hit and for them to say that. Um, is huge. Uh, now, I think we talked about this um, next fact uh, in our Couples Gates episode when we, I think it was I that came up with, that I come up with um, Faithfully uh, by Journey. Yeah. I think I talked about the story where um, Prince. Yeah, he called called up Kane and asked. Called up Kane and yeah. said, um, did I copy your song here? Because to me, now that I think about it, it sounds a lot like Faithfully. And Kane uh, laughed and, and he said no he goes it has the same four chords but no I mean it's it's a completely original song and um, you know he, he just he thought it was such a classy thing for Prince to pick up the phone and to be concerned about that because in that business people weren't concerned as much Absolutely. Um, and I don't think he was he was concerned out of getting sued I think he legitimately didn't want to steal someone else's work and you know he called up so um, the song believe it or not for as epic as the song is did not hit number one it was kept out by, of all songs, Wham's Wake Me Up Before, Before You Go-Go. Yeah. 
But um, number two. Springsteen has a great version of this. He does. I yeah. don't know if you've seen that on YouTube, but uh-huh. after his death, uh, Nils Lofgren handles that guitar solo. Um, oh, that's perfect. Um, of course, no one can duplicate what Prince did in that song, but but Nils filled in quite well. Um, yeah, it's just weird. Springsteen, yeah. it, it's like doesn't doesn't seem like it would work, but it does work. He did yeah. a nice job with it. Yeah, he opened his concert in Brooklyn, um, April twenty third, two thousand sixteen, with it. Um, and he actually said of Prince, "There's never been anyone better, band leader, showman, arranger." I never meant to call you when you Last thing, I don't remember if you watched the Super Bowl halftime show oh, yeah. uh, a while back uh, when Prince performed, which also is epic, and check that out on YouTube. But uh, I, I don't believe rain was even forecast that day. Um, but when he started to play Purple Rain and they turned all the purple lights on in the stadium, it, it started, started to, to rain. rain. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, so just kind of a, a fitting, fitting moment, one of those strange kind of like, oh, that's kind of cool. So yeah, I, 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 of of all the songs, I this this one, you know, and I don't know if we're going to include. Should we include the actual song? Is eight minutes long, over eight minutes long. No, let's. We it was chopped down to four minutes for the single. We need to put on the original. Thank you. Okay. We need to put on the original. Good. Yeah. No, I it, I I had the song. Like I said, for me, I I put it at number twelve. It was going to be my the close of of my my portion of the mixtape entirely, um, but. Um, yeah, no, I, you know the song it actually served Prince really well in, in concert too. It was always a showstopper. He, um, you know, he retained many of the visual elements from the movie performance in his shows, but he he played the song um, almost every show, usually as his close, closing number. And sadly, it was the very last song that Prince ever played live. Yep. Um, and then following Prince's death too, the song re-entered the Billboard Hot 100 and actually peaked again. Um, as a top ten hit, number seven, hit, I think. Number four, four. Hit, okay, hit number four after Prince died. You know, Prince is one of those artists. I would love to do an artist spotlight sometime for Prince. I mean, I, I, I don't I, know the catalog well enough to to do that. Okay, no, that's fair. I, I'm see, I don't know his story well enough. It's not right. like a Billy Joel where you and I can just spout off facts and whatnot. But I mean, you're talking about a, a just a performer whose repertoire his his. You know his portfolio is just so. Incredible. Well, it's intimidating. It's one of those that I, I don't get into because there's so much and I don't it, even know where to really start. There really is, yeah. I, and I've I've been very slowly um, over the years. I, I started picking picking up on it. My, my wife Gail is a huge Prince fan, so that that kind of gave me the push that I needed. And yeah, no, I I've just I I can't say enough about. 
Prince is an artist. There is one guy out there that not a huge Prince fan. I mean, he may respect his music, but um, he always makes fun of him. Weird Al. Oh, well, Because Prince would never let him use... Now, of course, Al, Weird Al could use any song he wants. It's a parody, so under fair use, you can you can take a copyrighted Correct. work if you're going to um, make a parody. But he always, again, Weird Al was a nice guy, and so he always got permission from the artists before um, writing a parody, and, and Prince would never let him yeah. um, do one of his songs. So yeah. he made fun of him on tour a lot. <laughs> yeah, yep. All right, well, uh, that is side A. That's a powerful side of A. Of our too. 80s movies song playlist so if, if you mixtape you know listening in uh, if i were one of our listeners i'd be wondering how we could possibly top side a because that was it was a good side that's a great side but i think we're gonna have a, an equally good side on side b next week yes i i 100 agree all right so well until next week uh shout out to our sponsor jay callahan painting uh make sure you do Look her up. Uh, you can find her on Facebook. Search the greater Cleveland area. If you have any painting needs, Jay Callahan painting. Um, I mean, she can't be beat. She is incredible. Um, and next week, as you said, side B, I guess that's it. I guess that's it. Hot funk, cool punk. Even if it's old junk, another mix of memories awaits next week. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. And we will see you on the flip side. Thank you.